My voice is very croaky. <laughs> Hopefully I'll get your through Your nose it. is very blocked. Yeah, yeah. Do, do you not need a quick go on your nasal inhaler? Okay. Before. I just gonna nail that up there. there so, what have you been doing while you've been waiting? I walked. I walked Keith. Nice. Yeah. Um, I watched Strike It Rich. Oh, is it Strike It Rich with Michael Barrymore? Yeah. Yeah. Nineties. Yeah, and there was cool. a there was a couple where the the woman was eighty nine and the man was thirty nine. No. Are you sure it wasn't? Uh, no, they they openly came out and said it, it was. Uh, they were a couple. Yeah. And how did Michael Barrymore react to what? And a fifty-year age gap. Mm-hmm. How did they? Re- did they win? No. Oh. Well, they, they well they won a they won a few things like a microwave and a. It's funny that the the, the one say the that. one thing they lost was um, hang gliding well, <laughs> experience. It's probably for the best. She isn't was it? she was wheelchair bound. She was in a wheelchair <laughs> during the. So, you know. Hey up! I'm Joe Heathcote, and this is consistently eccentric a British history podcast where we try to make sense of some of the lesser-known and more absurd people and events these islands have produced. So let's get started with... This? No, that's not the right pitch. This? No. <coughs> this. <laughs> this story takes place between the world wars. Arctic exploration has been recorded as taking place since at least 325 BCE when the Greek sailor, cartographer, explorer, astronomer, and all-round person who did more than you did at the age of only 25, Pythias <laughs> of Massalia, became the first European to encounter drift ice in the frozen seas beyond the northern edge of the world. This was back when you could say things like that. And people would take this you just This is the first recorded... Right, so there yeah. could have been someone before, but... Yeah. Okay. And also, you know, he saw this sea ice, but he had no idea whether that was it. It was like, I've gone beyond the edge of the world and I found these towering ice mountains. And everyone just went, okay, sounds legit. Well done, you. He was Greek. Yeah. Hmm. He had been searching for a source of tin, which was completely unnecessary as he had already circumnavigated the British Isles and had met with the civilised people of Cornwall who had been producing tin for nearly 2,000 years by this point. Although maybe he didn't like the prices they were charging. He's like, oh, I'll just go somewhere else. I'll like, get my own tin. <laughs> You're free to try. <laughs> I will. I'm sure there'll be someone else if I just keep going. Yeah, fine. You go. You find out. Anyway, he came back a couple of months later after seeing the tower in sea. I said, can I have some tin? <laughs> <laughs> the price has doubled. Fair enough. <laughs> I understand. <laughs> just over a thousand years after Pythias... The Vikings settled Iceland and, for a little while, Greenland. But it turned out Greenland isn't hospitable to humans, you know, all, all year. You can't you no. can't be a human on Greenland the entire year without lots of hardships. Um, from this point onwards, exploration of the Arctic was pretty much a consistent part of life for European civilizations, with everyone agreeing on the existence of a northwest passage that would revolutionise shipping should it be found as it will provide a shortcut to the Pacific Ocean. Because in order to get from the Atlantic to the Pacific, Mm. you had to go down either the coast of America or the coast of Africa, and then you had to go around one of the horns, so either the Cape Horn or Cape of Good Hope. Right. So they just knew. 
Yeah, but the north the northwest passage was an idea that instead of doing that, you could just sort of nip around the top of Canada, and you'd be in there. Right. So it would save for all the sort of northern European countries in the northern hemisphere. It'd save a hell of a lot of time because you weren't going the entirety of the southern hemisphere pretty much to get right, through. Yeah. In contrast, it took a bit longer for people to begin to venture to the other end of the globe and explore the Antarctic as Europeans only started to explore the Southern Hemisphere at all in earnest in the 1400s. Though British, Spanish and French explorers spent the next 400 years sailing progressively further south and claiming various islands as the most extreme parts of their empires, it was a pair of Russians called Fabian Gottlieb von Bellingshausen and Mikhail Lazarev, I may have pronounced those (laughs) wrong, who first sighted the Antarctic continent proper on January 27th, 1820 only just over 200 years ago. So really, considering how long we'd been sort of exploring yeah, the northern clams, it was... Very, very Very, recent. very recent, yeah. Despite confirming the existence of a massive unexplored continent, it took nearly another 70 years before anyone began launching serious expeditions. But why would you? Well, you don't know what's there. There could be anything. There's a reason why nothing is there. This was a period of time when people, honestly, there were people who had the honest belief in hollow earth that if there would be a hole at the top of the planet that you could climb into and, and there would be a subtropical there would be a subtropical world within oh. the planet. So the idea that you'd find this massive <laughs> continent with those kinds of ideas being just things people thought and you wouldn't go, that that needs a little bit of looking at. Maybe maybe we might find something behind that first bit of ice. Maybe there's another, you know... Bit of ice. <laughs> well, no. Beyond that, there might be something warmer climbs. You might hit something that's habitable and that we could claim that has loads of mineral resources, yeah. you know. It just seems weird that they'd spend 70 years not bothering. The launching of the serious expeditions just so happened to coincide with a prospective Scottish whaling fleet from Dundee deciding to take a risk to see if the Antarctic Weddell Sea was more profitable than the traditional Arctic hunting grounds in 1892 to 1893. And they were hunting whales. I don't like them. Yeah, well, basically... I like whales. At at this time, (laughs) the biggest source of lighting was oil. And the biggest source of oil was whales. Right. So the competition in the northern hemisphere around sort of like the arctic was massive there were so many whaling fleets from so many different countries and they were all competing and these little this little ragtag group of scottish entrepreneurs went well Let's go if where? there's whales in the cold bit at the top because they like the cold water yeah. i bet there'll be whales in the cold bit at the bottom and no one's going there to look so if we do find whales they're all are whales yeah. yeah so it was just a business move and as soon as they started to make profit Everyone People else like, like, wait well, a minute. Surely if we've colonised part of Antarctica, we can then claim the seas around it and then we can make sure that that's, you know, the whales that are in those seas are ours. So it's all about... Money. Money and political power, yeah. As soon as, as, soon as there was a, a monetary reason. What's he doing? What's he doing? I don't Joe? know. He's, he's just... It's the equivalent of photobombing. <laughs> Not your room. It's communal. You can't, you can't own a room, no. man. Get out of my room. <laughs> I'll take the opportunity to... That's so loud in here. <laughs> Sorry. I'll take the opportunity to empty my nose of mucus. And phlegm. Phlegm. This is, this is going so well, though, Harry. Don't worry. I'm not going to lie. Yeah. 
I forgot how much things I've got to try and visualise all at once when you tell me a story. Yeah, you're doing brilliantly, don't worry. It's going well. Have fun looking after the kids. Bye, bro. Remember, so long as they're alive, we're okay. Just just put put a bowl of water down, some lettuce. It'll <laughs> be fine. Yeah. Save it. Save it, dude. <laughs> The European superpowers saw the profits made and decided that being able to claim the Antarctic as their own territory might be a good thing. And over the next 30 intense years, 17 major expeditions were launched. Eight of these were British, but it was the sole Norwegian effort that reached the pole first in 1911, 33 days before Scott and his ill-fated expedition, which goes to show quality is always more important than quantity. Yeah. Just If you do it well, you'll only need to do it the once. What is it? Um, measure twice, caught once. Yeah, I'm just going to say same. Yeah, that's, that's the same thing. Prepare, yeah. prepare to but, fail. Fail to prepare. Prepare to fail. What's another one? I'm out. Yes, <laughs> <laughs> on the spot. No worries. It's it's difficult to come up with. Many a many a slip, twixt cup and lip. Don't count your chickens <laughs> before they've hatched. <laughs> so, the golden age of Antarctic exploration is generally thought to have ended with the death of Ernest Shackleton on January the 5th, 1922. However, I would make the case that it actually ended eight days later on January the 13th. Why is that? Well, here's why. Okay. A young man, a young and handsome man called Thomas Wyatt Bagshaw Mm. had been quietly studying geology at Cambridge University in early 1920 when he received a rather unique offer. (gasps) he was told that there was a team being put together to help map the west coast of the Weddell Sea in Antarctica. They had all the positions filled, except that of the geologist, and they wondered if he wanted the job. So is it, was he highly thought of? To no. Be, well, they just thought, oh, He was a random student he's geologist. He's cool. I like his vibe. He, was, he can come on the trip. Yeah. He was only 19 <laughs> at the time, had no experience in field work, especially field working at harsh conditions. But it was... Literally the chance of a lifetime. So he accepted. It's like, yeah. I, d- I don't know why you're asking me, but yes. I'm not going to question it. <laughs> Let's do this thing. The area of coast to be mapped was the bit in between the bit that had been discovered by the Swedish Antarctic expedition of 1901 to 1903 and the bit that had been discovered by Ernest Shackleton and named the Caird Coast in 1915. So there was a bit that the Swedish had mapped. There was a bit that Shackleton had mapped and there was this blank in the middle and they were like we're going to fill in right our job is to fill in the gap the swedish expedition had consisted of 28 men this included two johansons two carlsons and a whopping four andersons (laughs) while shackleton's expedition had likewise contained 28 men it was well known that aside from the obvious dangers of the cold harsh conditions and lack of food the mental strain of exploring the antarctic could be just as deadly with over a quarter of all the deaths recorded during the golden age of antarctic exploration being due to suicide either during or shortly after returning from an expedition oh. <laughs> so one in four of the people who died did so by their own hand because oh. it was just it's that Soul numbing. The ones that, when they got back, all they were hoping for was, oh, I can't wait to get back. I can't wait to get back. And then it just wasn't the same. <laughs> it lost its luster. That was it. Just like... I don't know how to person anymore. 
I've been literally spending <laughs> two years on what is a blank canvas. There's nothing there. Oh. It's just probably sensory overload yeah. to some degree. Just like, oh my God, there's colours. <laughs> I can't deal with the colours. Um, having a large party of comrades was considered a good means of ensuring morale was kept as high as possible, even during the most difficult of times. So part of having 28 blokes was... You could tell. Have a good time. If, yeah. If you, well, if your Hanson's looking a bit twitchy and he keeps polishing his gun, someone can go over and have a word with him. Go, your Hanson, come on. It's not that bad. Trying to play hide the pickle. <laughs> I I have no idea how much love there was between these people, but I think we should we should I'm gonna, besmirch if, them. If they get into the point of suicide, the mental, <laughs> they're going to be exploring <laughs> any any way of staving off that that creeping yeah. dread. The Graham Land expedition that Thomas had signed up for, would be made up of a grand total of four members. That's it. Four. John Cope, the leader, who had, like Thomas, decided to go on an expedition to Antarctica rather than finish studying university. He'd been planning on becoming a doctor, but instead John was a member of the Ross Sea Party, who became stranded from May 1915 to January 1917. During that time, he witnessed three of his fellow explorers die. So this is before he's... Going on this expedition. Yeah, that was his first expedition. His first expedition was an abject failure where they got stuck in pack ice for two years and three people died. And he came back from that to England and went, do you know what I want to do? (laughs) I want to replace them three people. Yeah. (laughs) But no others. (laughs) Yeah. I I went out there on a really well-funded, well-provisioned expedition and I saw three people die. What I want to do is I want to do it with just four people. Yeah, that's that's going to go well. Well, you got more food, mm. more space for food and things like that. Well, we'll see. Because mm. Hubert Wilkins, the second in command, was an Australian who would later seek to become the first person to reach the North Pole by submarine. It did not go well. He barely left port before it started leaking. But he made it. No, no, no. You just... He tried. Oh, he tried. He was the first person to try <laughs> oh, to get right. to the North Pole via submarine under the pack ice. And to be honest, he set off from, uh, I think it was a North American port, and immediately it started flooding. So he pulled over, sort of hammered some stuff on it. <laughs> We're all right, you know, patched the leaks. When again, one of the engines failed and had to stop off in Canada and they managed to convince him not to Look. go any further. <laughs> like you've had two catastrophic failures and you managed to get about 200 miles. You're looking at going under a sheet of ice where, you know, you're not just going to be able to bob back to the surface <laughs> and do some running repairs. It's like once you're under there, you're, you're under there. Yeah, and he, he was apparently very disappointed in the fact that people wouldn't let him because he still had faith in this submarine. <laughs> <laughs> he built himself out of balsa wood. Well, imagine having that much faith in your own. What, is that wood? No, God. Oh, right. I was like... <laughs> uh, the final member of the expedition, Maxime Charles Lester, a navigator from the Merchant Navy. Though why they needed an able seaman was not clear, as the expedition didn't actually have a boat of their own to sail to the Antarctic. What? Yeah. What? Instead, the plan was to literally hitchhike uh, on some Norwegian whaling ships and come to some arrangement to be picked up nearly a year later, having completed their work. What are they chilling in for the year without the... After they've been dropped off? They were just staying. In what? In Antarctica. They'd set up a camp, they'd be fine, don't we worry. And then, at some point, hopefully, the Norwegian boats will come back and they'll pick them up. It's a solid plan. <laughs> Thomas wasn't put I'm off. I'm so soft. Yeah. <laughs> I am such a well, wimp, like, the thought of that. Yeah, you, is that the faith. point where you'd be just going, no. <laughs> like, what, we just, they there's, might show up in a year. <laughs> there's, there's four of us, 
and were reliant on the goodwill of some Norwegians who <laughs> owe us nothing. Yeah, it'll be fine. I'm soft. Thomas wasn't put off by the unbelievably sketchy uh, enterprise, and he set off with Leicester and some supplies from Cardiff in October 1920. Due to the lack of being able to create a clear itinerary when you are thumbing lifts, Thomas and Leicester were the first to arrive at the rendezvous point of Deception Island in the South Shetland Islands in November. With some time to kill before their leader and second-in-command arrived, the pair decided to try their hand at a spot of whaling with their Norwegian friends. <laughs> well, what else are you going to do? do? You've got some time. You know, you could just... The whaling set-up... Write set a up, book? Yeah. Funny you should say that. Okay. The whaling setup consisted of three smaller whaling boats and a larger ship that acted as a floating factory. The whales would be harpooned and dragged to the floating processing plant where the body would be converted to barrels of oil. At the time, like I said, it was still the main form of lighting in the civilised world. The harpoons used by this stage had a shell affixed to the tip in order to blow a hole in the whale to kill it. The hooks that sit behind the shell would then be used to drag the carcass to the side of the ship and a tube would be inserted to inflate the body cavity of the whale so that it would float and they could drag it back to be processed. Even an 80-foot blue whale could be transferred from the catcher to the factory in minutes as it would just be cut loose to float near the main ship until they had space to process it. Each whale would have a flag stuck in it to let others know which whaling fleet had caught it, just in case it kind of floated off when no one was looking. (laughs) So you couldn't poach other people's whales. This is brutal, Joe. So you'd have this big ship that would have just whale carcasses dotted around it and they'd drag it onto the back of the ship, process it through and just dump the bits that they didn't use into the sea. So at the end of a whaling season, you would just have... Red Sea. Well, just a, a sea filled with the gore of maybe 60, 70, and a 80 load whales. Of seagulls and stuff. Oh, yeah. Having the time of their life. <laughs> it's yeah, so good. The ships are back. <laughs> yeah, and it, it and just one big ship that was just stuffed with barrels of oil. And then they, they'd head back off to sell it. After a month of whaling with the Norwegians, Thomas and Lester were finally joined by the leaders of the expedition at Christmas 1920. How long were they waiting? So they were waiting about a month and a half. From when they arrived, because everyone was thumbing a lift with different boats. So it was just a case of, well, if you hit a storm, sorry, there's going to be a two-week delay to the start of the mission. What so can you it do? It is what it is. Right. Yeah, which, you know, it's a bit wishy-washy. The entire thing is a bit wishy-washy. <laughs> they left the whaling fleets on January the 11th and asked to be dropped off at Hope Bay, which is a nice place to be dropped off. Hope. Um, to start their exploration. <laughs> Unfortunately, the Norwegians didn't like the look of the sea ice moving in the bay, and because they were literally doing this as a favour, they instead dropped the four men off on an island close to the main shoreline on the other side of the peninsula, assuring the four men that they would probably be able to get to their starting point pretty easily, as it was only about 40 miles away. So if there's a bit of land sticking out, and they'd wanted to be on the inside... They'd put them on the outside. They'd put them on the outside, but when... you, You know, it's only a thin strip of land, it's 40 miles you can get across and then you can just start from there because we're not we're not risking one of our whaling ships in the pack eyes. Cause if we're that doing sinks, you a favour. Yeah. 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 You, you should just be happy we brought you at all and we let you use our harpoons. <laughs> I mean, that was... Come on, you had a lovely day. How much day. fun did we have? Those are Massacring memories. Massacring all them whales. Those are memories that last a lifetime, <laughs> whether you want them to or not. They christened the new island Waterboat Point as an old whaling boat had been left on the shoreline, which the small team quickly converted into sleeping quarters 
prior to building a more permanent hut to store their equipment. They'd been planning to use the Swedish hut left over from the former expedition, but planning. They didn't know where it was. Yeah, or what state it's in. But they just happened to find a a boat that had washed up and gone, oh, look, it's like, (laughs) it's almost a hut. (laughs) Everything's going great for the Graham Land expedition. Woohoo! Yeah. <laughs> Yay! Um, the island was also chock full of Gentoo penguins and seals for food. In fact, it's best to assume that in every action I describe from now on, immediately in your head follow it by, and then they killed a seal. <laughs> because reading through this story, that's pretty much everything, as they managed to get through dozens of the things within the first couple of weeks. Just so, fattening up. <laughs> yeah, these are really fat seals, and they just and every everything you read, and it's like, and then we we turned the boat over, and we found a doorway, and we did. Then we killed a seal. <laughs> then we started setting up the blankets to make sure that it was all going to be. Then we killed a seal. That and it's just everything is always it's that whaling fleet just they've rubbed off on a put a animal instinct in them. Well, see, they, they were like tiny whales, and you could just literally clunk it on the head. Yeah. It's like there's tea. <laughs> okay, so. By the 17th of January, they had their base camp finished and they began prepping the equipment to be transported via sled and dogs, of which they had eight. So they were outnumbered by dogs. So they had eight sled dogs and only four guys. Did they have the dogs <coughs> on the boat yeah. when they first got... All oh, right, OK. Uh, no, they just found the dogs. They were wolves, actually. They just harnessed them. Um, <laughs> and then they killed a seal. But, yeah, they got all the equipment ready to be dragged by the sled dogs. Just all they had to do now was check the route overland to the Weddell Sea coast. So they hadn't... To this point, they'd been there nearly two weeks. They hadn't checked to see if there was a viable route across those 40 miles. They just assumed there would be. They took their small boat from the island to the mainland on June 30th, but found that the 40 miles to the opposite coast was blocked by a mountain range, which you think you would have noticed. (laughs) They tried climbing the first peak twice over the next two days and concluded that, even if by some miracle they managed to get their sleds and equipment over the range, it would take them so long that they wouldn't manage to get much further before winter set in in earnest and they'd run out of supplies. It's not, it's not starting well. Well, well no, it started well. They had a, something they could convert into a, into oh, a yeah. hut. But yeah, they've, they've found that pretty much they can't get... They peaked get, way too early. <laughs> they can't get to the bit that they're supposed to be surveying. They spent the next month trying unsuccessfully to find a way to sail around the peninsula in order to avoid the mountain range. But eventually, on the 25th of February, it was agreed that this wasn't going to work either. Cope decided that the best thing to do would be for him to leave the expedition that he was the leader of, (laughs) to go and procure a bigger boat that they could use to sail to a better starting point. He assured the others that so long as everything went well, he would be back by the 28th of February, 1922. And this was June by that point, did you say? Well, no, this was uh, February 1921. And he's saying... A year? Yeah, a year and three days. He was very specific. It's like, I- I'll be back by the 28th of February, 1922. I'll be back in a year. What did his... What did, what did they what say? What did the other it? three think? Yeah. Well, upon hearing yeah, sure, this... Yeah, sure, yeah, that's cool. Wilkinson, the Australian, wisely said that he would leave as well, as that sounded like a very loose plan. And it seemed that the entire expedition had been incredibly badly planned and under-resourced. As these were the two members of the team who had actual experience of Antarctic exploration... It seemed like this would be an end of things, until 19-year-old Thomas Bagshaw announced that he was happy to stay on and keep things ticking over until Cope got back. Lester also agreed to stay on, saying he would be right back after dropping Cope and Wilkinson off with the whalers before they left at the end of the season. So then the 19-year-old was left by himself? 
Thomas, amazingly, was happy to stand on the beach of Waterboat Point on the morning of February 26th, waving off the other three men of his expedition as they took the only working boat off and out of sight over the horizon. So he just stood there going, well, you've said you'll be back. <laughs> Thanks, guys. I'll see you soon. Is that the most trusting person in the world, or he just... And then once they disappeared over the top, he just clubbed a seal for dinner <laughs> and went back to his hut boat. Started... What the... He what? waited for eight anxious days, with only eight sled dogs for company, when finally Lester returned in the small boat. Oh, my God. He was followed the next day by <laughs> Captain Anderson from the Norwegian Whalers, who made one final plea for the two young men to allow him to take them back to civilization. Thomas and Lester politely thanked him and said they were happy to wait for Cope. Thomas. Captain Anderson reluctantly left, but promised that as soon as he returned to the area the following January, he would send one of his boats to come and check on the two men, just in case Cope didn't return. This what turned nice out to be man. a really lucky break for Thomas and Lester. <clears throat> they didn't know it, but Cope quickly realised that he had no means of securing a boat suitable for Arctic exploration. So he said, fuck it. He returned to London and finished his training to become a doctor. He qualified in 1933 and worked happily as a GP until his death in 1947, never returning to the Antarctic again in his lifetime. What dickhead. (laughs) He went back and he's like, I need to borrow a boat that can survive pack ice um, and a a potential overwinter in the Antarctic. And everyone just went, okay, that's going to cost a lot of money. What do you have? He's like, well, I have some seal carcasses. (laughs) Um, They're worth, they must be worth literally pennies. And they went, well, we're not lending you our boat then. So you went, ah, I, I tried. I, the, the, um, if he got his doctorate and then to save for the money, for the, that, that's the only way I'd forgive this longer, man. These guys are going to stay there. Well, you know, but it's a means to... Yeah. <laughs> I know I said it'd be one year and I know it's been seven, but <laughs> it took a long time to get to be dean of medicine at a top <laughs> hospital. So, you know, I mean, really, it's, you know, the oh. hiring policy of these hospitals that's an issue, not me. What a horrible person. Yeah. Wilkins, the Australian, he did return to the Antarctic the same year. Only he did so as part of Shackleton's final Shackleton Rowett expedition aboard an actual boat called Quest. Did he go back for them? No, he was busy working with Shackleton on a different part of the Antarctic. It's just brutal, isn't it? Yeah. Almost History as... is just brutal. <laughs> well, the good thing for this is that Lester and Bagshaw, they have no idea of this. As far as they're concerned... Everything's going according to plan. Someone's going to come back with a boat the next, you know, February, and then they'll get they'll get started. They're just having a bit of a delay. Why don't you just go back with them? That's what I yeah. can't. can't <clears> well, I, I don't know. Almost as soon as the whalers had disappeared from view, it became obvious that the two men preparing to overwinter in the Antarctic were woefully undersupplied. For tools, they had one saw, two geological hammers which are tiny little hammers, a chisel, and a couple of pocket knives. That's it. That's the tools they have. (laughs) Uh, Even worse, they had only seven bottles of Worcestershire sauce to season their only source of food, which was seal and penguin meat. (laughs) So it's a pretty bland menu they were going to be eating. Even, even worse, the boat that they had converted into living quarters was not in any way fit to allow them to survive the winter temperatures that could drop close to minus 30 degrees Celsius in July and August. Lester... But they, surely they knew this. Y- yeah, but they were sort of caught up in everything. Oh, we'll be fine. We'll be, don't you worry about it. And then everyone left and they sort of went, right, okay, let's see what they've left us with. You didn't bother... <laughs> okay, we 
we've got nothing. Um, okay. Uh, well, I guess we're here. I'm going to go club a seal. <laughs> yeah. Just we, in anger. Got That's say. what it was at that point. Yeah. Just in anger. <clears throat> Do you feel better now? Yeah. Lester got busy constructing a hut from scratch using spare sail, the wood from the transport crates and grease from the seals that they were killing. Meanwhile, Thomas turned his attention to the colony of penguins that were preparing to leave following the end of the nesting season. He killed those little buggers in their hundreds, getting so good at butchering their little tiny bodies that he could process up to 15 per hour, storing the meat in specially constructed larders to support the two men through the winter season. So at least cannibalism wasn't an immediate concern. Well, yeah. Although, you know, genociding an entire um, genus of penguin was on the cards. Yeah, but that, at that point, you wouldn't, you wouldn't care, would you? What did, what did you do in your winter in the Antarctic? I made a species <laughs> extinct. What did you do? <laughs> when not trying to botch together the tools they would need to survive, the two men decided that they might as well pretend the expedition had some purpose, and they fastidiously kept meteorological observations and tidal readings once every four hours. For the entire time they were there. Yeah. They would take... What else are you going to be doing? Yeah. Well, they but would... that was the highlight of the day. <laughs> like... Well, in order to take the title readings, it was a stick in the water that they had to observe. And every time it fell over, they had to wade out into Antarctic waters to reset it. Ugh. And they were... No one was asking them to do this. <laughs> it, it wasn't even part of what the original plan was, because the original plan had been to just do a map of yeah, a yeah. bit of coastline. So they gone, well, what what can we do? We've got a stick and we can put some lines on it so we can take tidal charts. You'd need a purpose of some kind, yeah. wouldn't you? But because they were doing it once every four hours, this meant that they had to take it in turns to wake up in the freezing cold night to go and collect the data. Despite the express purpose of the whole trip, as I've said, having nothing to do with this data that they were collecting. It was in this weird self-imposed research capacity that Thomas Bagshaw had his 20th birthday on April 18th, 1921. They ate a Christmas cake in celebration, which had been packed where life-saving tools hadn't, (laughs) but otherwise carried on with the daily work of ensuring the hut was kept watertight, keeping the fire lit so they wouldn't freeze to death, and taking their scientific readings. What were they burning? Wood. They had wood. How much wood, though? Not as much as maybe they needed. Okay. But they had some wood. (laughs) I don't actually know how much wood they had. But I... And they had a saw, <clears throat> so I'm assuming that all the local foliage, because they were they were on the coast of the Antarctic, right, yeah. there were some okay. some things growing. They chopped them all down. They would be clear cut in the entire area <laughs> before the the proper snows set yeah. in, and they couldn't do anything. Then they want want them trees for shelter. They're ironically cut down. <laughs> in spite of the formidable reputation of the Antarctic for claiming lives, the two men settled into a routine to the point that they almost seemed to be taking the piss. They began using table linen for their dinner, and Bagshaw even took the time to rig up a rudimentary hot bath. Unlike the Arctic, they had access to plenty of fresh water, and their stores of soup, seal and penguin were plentiful, with steels, seals still available to be hunted throughout their stay. They passed Antarctic midwinter in June 2021, and the penguins returned to the island in October, further easing any slight worries the two men may have had about food. In fact, they were so comfortable that Thomas Bagshaw decided, apropos of absolutely nothing, that they should take it upon themselves to add to their scientific portfolio by studying the behaviour and nesting habits of the native Gentoo penguin population. This kept the two men happy. Why not? (laughs) Well, why not, yeah. 
you're keeping track to how many say say how many you'd have to kill again. <laughs> well, what 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 sort of impact he'd had on the penguin yeah. population? It turned out very little. <laughs> there were thousands and thousands of the buggers, and they would sort of follow them around, and they'd just sit happily sketching them, following individual penguins to see what their habits were. And again, no one was asking them to do this. They were just like, you'd have to keep. We've got a bit bored of yeah. We've got a bit bored of the tide chart now. We're going to keep doing it, but we but, need something else yeah. to keep keep our minds fresh and keep us going. This kept the two men happily occupied as the weather warmed through November until, quite to their surprise, a boat came into view containing none other than Captain Anderson. In November time. Is that the... No- start of the whaling season no- again. No- Norwegian one. Yeah, oh yeah, right. this is the Norwegian whaling yeah. captain. He informed the men that the two colleagues had abandoned the expedition and asked if they would like for him to take them off the island. The, oh, they're going to say no, aren't they? Thomas, he considered the offer and he said, no, thank you. But this was only because he wanted to wait a few more weeks to pack down the camp and complete his new penguin research. For example, do you know it takes half an hour to hard boil again to penguin egg? I do now. Yeah. And Thomas had to confirm that through further tests. Do little sell them hmm? eggs? Again, two eggs. Yeah. Uh, oh. Unfortunately not. Maybe a special buy or something? No. I mean, I'd, I'd check. <laughs> what with the way Brexit's panned out, oh, we well. may soon be, you know, <laughs> sourcing our eggs from other parts. <laughs> um, he and Lester agreed that if Anderson swung back in a few weeks, they would be packed up and ready to leave the hut. They did, however, allow him to take the six dogs that remained from the eight-dog sled team. Um, a team that had pulled a sled a sum total of zero yards since arriving. Neither of the dogs uh, that died had been killed, by the way. They, they hadn't needed them for food. No, um, but still sad. Though Thomas Bagshaw does casually note at one point in his um, notes, his diary, that he's in possession of a pair of dogskin gloves. So they also didn't waste them <laughs> when the dogs died. It's like, well, oh, lassie. Oh, that looks warm. Oh, that, f- yeah. <laughs> oh, that fur looks proper warm. Oh. <laughs> get, get me my geological hammer. I'm going to try and skin this dog. The chisel. <laughs> oh, God. Yeah, you let the dog freeze, then you just use hammer and chisel and peel it off the... Oh. yeah. I'd... I mean, yeah, I don't blame him. <clears throat> Sewed himself together a pair of dogskin gloves. In order to ensure that the two enjoyed a Merry Christmas, Anderson left them with a whole sheep, potatoes, cheese, sausage, and a whole host of other foods. Unfortunately, the two men had become so used to their restrictive diet of penguin breast and seal mints that their first blowout meal on the 19th of December saw them both indisposed for the entirety of the following day. They were just... Galloping gut rot. The body just went, What the hell is this? (laughs) Flavour! Oh, God. Purge! Purge! A year and two days after they first set foot on Waterboat Point, and eight days after Ernest Shackleton's death officially ended the golden age of Antarctic exploration, Thomas Wyatt Bagshaw and Maxime Charles Lester left their hut for the last time. They had left a stock of firewood and had battened down the entrance just in case someone else wanted to use the hut for future. What? So the, enti- the entire reason they delayed leaving and spent Christmas alone on this island is, is because they'd wanted to make sure that if anyone else wanted to come and do a, a vacation there, yeah, it'd all be nice for them. They didn't want to leave it messy. I like they're not leaving it messy, but it's just... They've got to be something wrong with them. Why would you want to stay there well, for that long? 
I'm a little bit nippy now, and I'm just thinking. <laughs> I'm about wishing it. I didn't have flip flops on. <laughs> minus thirty, and it's not just that; it's the minus thirty, and you can hear this. Whoosh, you look at your watch, and you go, "Oh, time to go and check the tide chart." <laughs> and you pull on like seventeen layers, and then just <laughs> scribble, scribble, and then back. Well, I feel like doing doing that now. Doing it. If you did that right now with the best stuff available, it would be unbearable still. Mm. It'd be dreadful. I'd hate it. So To have done it then. Yeah. Yeah. Fair play to them. But they they decided they couldn't go back to civilization straight away. And they stayed with Captain Anderson for the 1922 whaling season. Helping where they could before they finally sailed away from the Antarctic at 7pm on March 30th, 1922. At the Antarctic Annual Club Dinner... There was a custom of the president raising a toast to each expedition in chronological order, with the grizzled veterans of each who were present standing to take their round of applause in turn. When the Grahamland expedition was called and two shy and fresh-faced young men took their turn, they were met with a standing ovation, louder than all the rest. Everyone in the room was amazed that they had overwintered in the Antarctic with such relative ease. It was, and still is, the smallest expedition to ever complete the feat. Lester returned to the Merchant Navy, seeing the Antarctic again several times in the course of his working life. Thomas Wyatt Bagshaw, however, after serving in the RAF reserves during World War II, settled into the quiet life of an academic in Bedfordshire, becoming an expert in local folklore and a fellow of the Society of Antiquities. Apparently, it took some persuading for Thomas to write a book about the experiences of that year, He thought no one would be interested and only said yes when the publisher agreed that the book would contain nearly 100 pages of meteorological charts and field notes. Ah, so it wasn't in vain. (laughs) It's like, someone needs to read (laughs) this. I'll publish it. If you you put my research in it, no one needs that research. What what did they write the results on? How did they... Paper, I assume. And I just found it hard to believe that that all stayed fine. They they were running that ship. That was a tight ship they were running there. They had it all watertight. Re- regardless. And you know, they got so obsessed with the idea, we're doing this for science, that they would have let food spoil so that they could keep the notes <laughs> nice. And clean. It's like, why, why why, are you putting the notes in the chest? Because it, need, it needs to be perfect. Yeah, but all your clothes are wet. <laughs> yes, but the notes, the notes. <laughs> Do you not see? If we don't have the notes, this entire thing was pointless. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, that's very I mean, true. Without those, we're just two idiots <laughs> doing a random thing for no reason. Oh, God. We need the notes. Um, yeah. Thomas died in 1974, having never revisited Grahamland and his little hut. However, the memory of the trip remains in the form of Bagshaw Glacier, named for him, which pleasingly drains into Leicester Cove, ensuring ah. that the two friends and adventurers will be remembered together forever. It's lovely, lovely little end, that. Isn't it? Yeah. Oh, I should say, he he did actually, he published two books. One was the main source I used, oh, yeah. which was called Two Men in the Antarctic, An Expedition to Grahamland, 1920-1922. And that was written by Thomas Wyatt Bagshaw himself. But the other book he wrote, and I didn't use it as a source, was called Pompey Was a Penguin. <laughs> and it was all about the, the penguin research. Really? Because he hadn't managed to convince the publisher to also add an extra, you know... <laughs> 100 page appendices of all of his penguin notes. So he he wrote an entire different book where he just talked about the penguins, which he he grew really fond of. And he kind of... You knew, aren't you? (laughs) Yeah, but he kind of glossed over the fact that he, you know, killed thousands of the little buggers. 
It's like, yeah, but... It's all for research. <laughs> 19... Yeah, I was a different guy in 1921. Uh, that 1922, I'd learned. I'd learned <laughs> to love them, so it's okay. But yes, that is the story of Thomas Wyatt Bagshaw and the smallest overwinter in Antarctica that has ever happened. To this day now? Yeah, for no reason. That's amazing. It just goes to show, you know, if there isn't, if you're not getting to do the science you thought you were going to do... Make it. Yeah, there's yeah. always different science That's you it. could science. <laughs> That's such an Im- impressive thing to do at 19. That's yeah. what I can't get over. Or was he 18 at first? Uh, yeah. he, he was 19 when he agreed to do it, and, and then... by the time he left he was 21. So he, he went as a boy. Wow. He returned as a man. The right passage. A penguin loving man. Because nothing keeps you warmer than a couple of penguins under the armpits. They're like nature's hot did, water I bottle. I bet they did that. <laughs> Cover themselves in penguins. No, well, like, they've got used to them, wouldn't they? Mm. After the. Or did he just keep killing them the whole whole way through? No, it was mainly the seals. Right, <clears throat> so that, yeah. I reckon they'd have done that. Again, like, like I said, with every one of those sentences, every time it's like, and then he he did this, and then he clubbed a seal. <laughs> was every time, yeah. He went and he took a meteorological reading, and then he just thought, oh, God, our third chest freezer. I don't like freezer. the look of that seal. <laughs> Take him back. I don't think the Weddell seal did well here. You know? I don't, I don't think it exists anymore. No, doesn't it? Probably not. Google will know. Yeah, Google will know. Google knows all things. Hi there, it's Emma, Chief Organiser at Consistently Eccentric, here to remind you all that if you like what you hear, you can catch up with all previous episodes and session series by searching for us on Acast, Spotify and iTunes. How fancy. You can also join us on Instagram at Consistently Eccentric Podcast, where we update on the weekly episode and post all of our bonus content for you lucky lot. See you next week.